Hello, welcome to another episode of Shattered Lives, the Irish Daily Stars crime podcast. I'm crime correspondent Michael O'Toole. We have a real treat for you today. I've been speaking to an Irish man called Chris Reynolds. He has a riveting story. Chris has had a unique career path in law enforcement and in the emergency services in general that spanned more than 40 years. He was a naval service officer, the head of the Irish Coast Guard, and then ended up leading a maritime and policing operation in one of the world's most dangerous cities. Chris opened up to us about his eventful career. He tells us how he helped recover hundreds of bodies from the waters of the southwest coast of Ireland after the Air India disaster in the mid-1980s. And he talks about how he became caught up in a horrendous massacre of more than 100 people when he was working as a UN peacekeeper in Lebanon in the 1990s. Finally, Chris tells us how he spent years trying to restore law and order to lawless Somalia in East Africa and how he managed to do that under constant threat from terrorists. Chris Reynolds, a very interesting character and I would say unique, in my opinion, in Irish Blue Light or Irish Emergency Services circles and hopefully our our listeners on Shattered Lives will get a good picture of why I consider your career is unique. So just to recap... The last few years you have been in Somalia, in East Africa, the Horn of East Africa. Now, most people will, when they consider Somalia, will think that it's a failed state and they will think of piracy. Now, I'm going to get the view of an expert on you on this, but you were there as the civilian head of UCAP, which is a European, it's it's a European law enforcement mission. Okay, so the European have the European Union, the European member states have a foreign common foreign security policy. It is the common policy in our foreign affairs and security policy, and there are certain tools within that policy. One tool is called the uh, CSDP, some common security and defense policy, and within that there are missions uh, that the EU launches abroad, uh, both civilian military, both uh, uh, executive and non-executive. And so my mission was a civilian non-executive mission. And is, did I read somewhere that you would be have been the first Irish head of an EU mission? That's correct. We had had force commanders before, but that's different. Force commanders simply appointed by the, by the state that is ho- hosting the force. But I was the first uh, of... Uh, uh, Irishman to be a EU head of mission. Now, head of mission in, in EU terms is an ambassador. So it is an EU ambassador level uh, concept. And you apply and you go through uh, interview process, etc. So I was lucky to be Ireland's first. And I think, and so far only. Okay. And, and is that something you take pride in? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It is, uh, I've been 44 years involved in uniform service. And uh, this, to me, was a culmination of that 44 years. Okay, so we're going to get into what UCAP is later on in the interview, but I'd like to go backwards to go forward. So you started off, if uh, I'm correct, as an officer in the Naval Service. Correct. So tell us a bit about that. Okay, sure. I left school in 1979 and pretty much went straight into the Navy, into the, into, uh, the cadet, cadets. In those days, the cadets were sent to the Royal Navy to train. So I spent best part of three, three and a half years at the Royal Navy uh, training uh, in their officer training scheme. Uh, Is that Dartmoor? Dartmouth, yes. It's the San- okay, Navy Sanders. In fact, uh, Prince Andrew was there at the same time as me. It's uh, something I've had to take off my CV recently, but it was something on my CV in the old days. And that was really interesting. We were treated quite well 
particularly given the, the fork of the wars on the time, and it, it could have been difficult, but it was, it was fine. So most of my career was um, either driving ships, and my main specialization was uh, as a diver, as the head, head diver of the Navy, and that included bomb disposal and improvised explosive device disposal. So that was a big area of my work. Uh, so early on, I became very used to uh, recovering lost people, people who drowned, been suicide. Uh, my ship, Ashling, was the on-scene coordinator at the Airbnb disaster, if you remember 1986, the first, first uh, terrorist bombing of a jumbo jet. Uh, and so the, the concept of looking for missing people and recovering missing people and that element of work was already in my kind of DNA early on in my career. Um, what was, well, you, you've raised two things there. I have to ask you first, what was Prince uh, Andrew like? Did you have any dealings with him? Uh, he wasn't very popular, I'd say. Um, and I have plenty of stories about uh, Prince Andrew. Uh, but if, for example, if you're playing soccer in the soccer pitch, you'd have to call him your Royal Highness to Prince Andrew, please pass the ball. Whereas when Charles Nam went through, um, they were much more informal and very popular, whereas Prince Andrew was much more formal and, and standoffish. So I left, it's definitely less popular. And I've, I've loads of uh, stories that uh, about his time there uh, that would take some time. Okay, so secondly, and more importantly, I suppose the area India, India disaster. I was, I was fifteen, sixteen when that happened, so it's etched in my memory. So along the lines of you remember the Don Tidy kidnapping, you know, and John O'Grady. So they all sort of happened around the same time in the mid to late eighties. And just for for uh, younger listeners, area India, there was a, it was flying from Canada. Was it flying from Canada or to Canada? No, flying from Canada, going going to India uh, for people taking people home for festivals and stuff. So it was it was full. And it, it blew up midair. Was part of the the, the, the Sikh issue, the issue with the Sikhs and, and, and at home. And, and just so to be for full disclosure, uh, I had just arrested a Spanish, British Spanish trawler, literally as the plane blew up, pretty much overhead. So uh, my captain said, "Take that uh, fishing vessel into Castellan Bay, arrest it, and we'll go off and we'll deal with this." What was then just a mayday? We didn't know what it was going to be, and the captain kidnapped me and tried to take me to Spain, to Vigo. And so I had to be rescued myself uh, on the day of the Air India and then get back to my ship uh, via various ways. Okay, you're a man of many, many stories, Chris. What do you mean he kidnapped you? They kidnapped me because they didn't want to be arrested and my ship had just left me. And I had a gun, I had a brownie automatic and my NCO had a, had a machine gun, a, a Gustav, Carl Gustav. Yeah. We're not going to shoot anybody over fish. Uh, so, uh, and what he did then is he pulled out all the fuses from the uh, HF and MF equipment, his long-range comms equipment. So all I had was a basically handheld VHF uh, radio, and we were about a hundred miles off the coast. And luckily, Valencia Radio, which later I became the boss of, I was able to pick up my handheld because it was such a beautiful, um, sunny day that the radio waves travel a long way. And Ali Emer came and rescued me. So uh, a bit embarrassing, but that's what happened. Does and you probably, you, I mean, if this was America, th- that person who kidnapped you may have been Swiss cheese. But I suppose there is an Irish way of doing things, and it is you're right. Can you shoot somebody for fish? Yeah, well, I held him in, and I handed him over to the guards. And uh, the state solicitor at the time was on holidays, so they let him go. I spent years. I found him. I found him again, and we did it properly second time. Tell me, you said that it exploded, I mean, I don't know, was it 30,000 feet? Uh, it was the icing. Did you, did you see any of the explosion or did you see any of the no, aftermath? No, no, we, we heard nothing or saw nothing. 
It was simply, uh, it was overdue. Uh, Shannon, uh, the Shannon uh, Air, Air Traffic Control uh, recognized overdue. It disappeared off the radar, so we were tasked to go look for it. It was only about eight miles, for, eight nautical miles from our location. We heard nothing. Um, and it was a traumatic day for the crew. That was very traumatic. And I certainly, um, when I go back to my vessel, uh, alongside Hull Bola and, and helped with the offloading of the, the, the bodies, we had 80 bodies on board. Um, it was, you know, it was something that, st- that sticks to your mind. A lot of a lot of the crew, I think, had got post traumatic stress uh, afterwards. I myself suffered from post traumatic stress for a different reason and a later event. Um, but uh, at the time, it wasn't really recognised when you're dealing with such uh, trauma, especially with children, especially with children, uh, that it does it 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 bores into your soul. Is there any thing that can prepare you for that? Well, I literally recovered hundreds of bodies. I mean, I literally have recovered my life as a diver, hundreds of bodies. And so you think that would prepare you, uh, but it never prepares you for children. Nothing can prepare you for children. Okay. And you you got into the, was it the diving school or the diving unit of the, the Naval Service? I was diving school and diving at the boat. It was, it was, it was the, the, the lot. It was small enough. Uh, so um, I was sent to the UK for a year-long course of Royal Navy. Uh, mine warfare and clearance diving officer and uh, that's the most senior diver you can be and so when I came back that was my job to basically build up the diving unit and we did a reasonable job um, wh- Why did you pick that unit? It kind of picked me It's it kind of, <laughs> when I was in, in, in Dartmouth you could do these leave activities and uh, one of the leave activities that um, was being offered was diving in Cyprus so I put that down as my first choice but not being Royal Navy I didn't get it so they, my, my division officer says, well, Chris, I can give you diving on the south coast of England. I said, okay, I'll take that. Little realizing it was a uh, the Navy divers course, which is brutal. It's absolutely brutal and a failure rate of 80%. There's all the diving courses I have. But being a um, short, ginger Irishman, I was not going to let them grind me down. And, and I, I passed the course. So I, I fell into it. As in, as in with the Coast Guard, with the with my time overseas, I kind of fell into these things. And and I've always had this uh, attitude of, of, you know, and I used to say to my diving uh, classes, now I use a different word, but I say, just when you think it's all, you know, you're going to give up, just say, feck it and do it anyway. And, and that's been my, my my kind of the way I've lived life. I mean, there's I've, I've taken jumps into the dark so often and they've worked out, but they mightn't have. That's, it's always an interesting life to do that. Was there any, did you have, and that was the early 80s, late 70s, and there may not have been as politically correct as there were now, was there any anti-Irish guff you got at Dartmouth? Uh, Royal Marines. I think the Royal Marines were the only one, ones who gave us a hard time. The uh, the Navy guys, no. No. The, the, the Navy guys tend to come from a different stock as well. I'll be honest, the Royal Marines were, were a little rougher around the edges because they had to be rough around the edges and during um, the Falklands and, and uh, the, the, the position Charles Hoy and the Irish government took about the Falklands and we were there in the middle of it in, in the Royal Navy um, it, you know, we were an obvious target for some comments it never got violent uh, a few comments um, but that's all Were you called Paddy? I presume you were Yeah, yeah, yeah but I call him Norman and they said why are you calling me Norman? I said us Irish we call all you Brits Normans you're just Normans and he said, no, you can't do that. That's my name. I said, well, my name's not Paddy. He went, oh, okay, I get your point. You know, you, you've brought something to, to mind for me. So in 1984, so I was, I was 13, because I'd gone on 14. It's amazing 
of the things you remember, I went over to, with my brother and my, and my older brother, he got his tickets. We went over to the Charity Shield. Or Liverpool, I can't believe I ever went to see Liverpool even then as a child. Liverpool versus uh, Everton, great game. But we had hospitality and we were, bear in mind, we were 13 and we were in having dinner or whatever and they had a comedian. And like an idiot, the comedian said, anybody Irish in the, in the audience? And like an absolute idiot, I stuck my hand up. And, I, and he went, what's your name, son? And I went to answer and he said, don't worry, I'll ask you something easier, right? And you know what? The whole place erupted, laughing at a child. And it was just shows you the sort of, for me, it was just this casual racism back in the day. I mean, it's just, imagine, imagine taking the, the piss out of a kid. Even the TV programs were racist back then. Uh, but uh, one of the things that I, I noticed um, um, academically and professionally, I did very well in my time growing up. In fact, I taught every single course and became first place in everything. And this confused the English something terrible that an Irish guy could academically wipe the floor with him. And an Irish guy could professionally uh, wipe the floor. And they couldn't handle this. And my classmates there, because we had a, a few Irish there for the Irish Navy at the same time, did very well as well. And they were of the assumption that we are handpicked from the best schools, uh, from the best colleges to be sent over to embarrass the English. And they, they couldn't understand it. But no, we were just, we're just selected from, uh, from, from our leading certs. And that was it. And that, that was a form of racism, racism as well. It just uh, it was a lack of uh, understanding because the Irish and English at the time were not the, probably the best regarded. Now, tell me this: you mentioned there that you did suffer from TSB or develop PTSD, but it wasn't from the Air India. It, it was another incident. Would you like to talk about that? Yeah. Okay. Um, towards the end of my time in the Navy, I was uh, asked to go to Lebanon. I was there for a year in the current headquarters uh, as a yeah, captain. Yeah. And now the, the, the Grapes of Wrath War kicked off, uh, the Israeli Hezbollah War in 96. And I was the senior captain in Nakura. So I was sent to take charge of the humanitarian co- convoys of Aquana. And so we ran the convoys at Aquana uh, two, three times a day. Uh, Robert Fisk and other uh, reporters would come with us uh, and we'd run the convoys. And we were the only thing moving. Nothing else was moving. Uh, 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 and so the Israelis needed to stop us. They needed a free fire zone. They needed to kill anything that was moving because that was the way they were going to hit Hezbollah. So they needed to stop us moving. So they just dropped ordnance all over us uh, uh, for the first couple of days. So first uh, six days, it was all exciting and, and, and thrilling and it was uh, boy zone stuff. It was just, just you know, I, I, I had no real fear uh, for my own mortality. And then um, on day six, we were first convoy after the Force Mobile Reserve into the Kwana massacre, and that was that was awful. It was mainly it was women and children, pretty much women and children, and we put 120 women and children into into blankets. What was left of 120 women and children in blankets, but that was what caused PTSD. So, so that was just, no, no, just just to contextualise for our, our younger listeners. That was obviously you were a part of the United Nations Interim Force in the Eleven yeah. and the Irish, well, not the Irish Battalion, but the Force the Force HQ in the Cora. Yeah, correct. Okay, and at Quana was a horrific massacre. If I recall, it was a a community centre or a shelter that was shelled by the was it the Israeli army or the South Lebanese army? Their proxies. It was the Israeli army. Israeli, Israeli army. And and they effectively had a shelter, or they had a place where hundreds of people were sheltering. Yes. The, 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 the expedition was done deliberately to embarrass the Prime Minister, so the Prime Minister would have to sue for peace. And at the upcoming elections, he'd be defeated in the upcoming elections because he'd be seen as a dove, not a hawk. And, that and was what, conventional wisdom at the time. 
And it is what it was. We, I mean, you and I would remember Sabra and Shatila in 1982, yeah. the really bad by the Christian phalangists yeah. uh, after the Israeli invasion of, of, of the whole of the Beirut anyway. But that Qana massacre, it was one of the most horrific ones because, as you say, it was a, a, a targeted artillery strike on a shelter for effectively women and kids. Yes, correct. But that's all, that's not really what gave me the PTSD. Mm. Uh, what gave me the PTSD was the uh, we, uh, the people who were with me were all withdrawn, um, and I was just left there, the only one who was there. And we kept on doing the covers and kept on going out, and the shelling got worse. Um, and um, it got to a point where I was leaving in the morning with my with the first convoy. I was pretty certain I wasn't coming back. I wasn't. I, I, I may be here today. No, I'm not coming back today. And I would come back and I go out again. Oh, I'm not going to come back. And I got in. It get that gets into you after a while. But you still go out. You have your job. So you go out. And so for the next uh, six, eight days, I think it was thirteen day war. Um, I carried on. But at the end of that, I was pretty frazzled um, because there was a couple of times when really we should have been hit, and um, for what happened around us with the fire katushkas from our positions and stuff. But we just uh, got lucky. So when I came back. And my wife said to me, I don't know who you are, but you're not my husband. Jesus. Uh, yeah, go see somebody. Uh, um, and I came back with uh, quite a good report from the um, from the UN and from the military there. And, and that caused a lot of, believe it or not, it caused jealousy within the service. That they were jealous that I, that, that I had gone through this and I had this experience and I had these citations. And, 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 and the jealousy was palpable. To the point that um, I thought, okay, I can't stay in the Navy anymore. It's, it's time to move on. And um, this is not the service for me. Uh, when you get treated, I was treated very badly. That's when I got back. And so I left. Okay, so a couple of questions arise from this. Was mm -hmm. the jealousy partly because you were a naval service officer and it's mostly army officers and army people who are in no. uniform? What was it? No, the jealousy was that uh, I, was, uh, I, was, uh, I was senior in my class. I was uh, probably lined up for uh, accelerated promotion. And there were people ahead of me who were also fancy themselves as lined up for accelerated promotion. So this was uh, a guy coming back with war experience, with uh, citations for bravery, with uh, the highest uh, awards that you can get when you're overseas service. And I was, I was a threat. And so that was where it came. Did the Defence Forces offer you, did they provide any counselling? Was their welfare no. any good for you? No, no. no. Are you shocked they by were, that? It wasn't there, it wasn't that it was before really was understood. So I did go see a, a, a social worker who was with the Navy, but the social worker was the wife of my Navy classmate. So, and there was no confidentiality. You had to walk in through the corridors and people saw me coming in and going in. And the rumor spread that I was getting divorced from my wife, that we were having a family breakup and stuff. So there was no, it was no. So when I did leave eventually, I wrote to the fence. I said, listen, yeah, I think I need to talk to somebody, and and I have to hand it to both defense and defense forces. Yes, okay, we've not done this before, but we have an army psychiatrist come back and 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 do counseling with him. I did, and it helped, and it fixed it. It took about five years. It's a slow, gradual. Uh, you you kind of come out of PTSD slowly. Uh, but it took about five years before I could say, yeah, okay, that's fine. It's done. Now, just just one technical question. Obviously, UNIFIL missions are six months, but I think was yours have been a year because you were at the headquarters. Uh, no, <laughs> what happened with me was um, uh, I was due out the next rotation, 
And the guy who went to my job, the rotation, he got out there and wanted to be home with his parents. His parents weren't well. So he just left. So I was at sea uh, on a ship and I got a phone call saying, we want this, uh, I, children one, two and three years old. They got a call on the Monday saying, a Tuesday, so Chris, we want you to come back and we want you to go out to Lebanon for six months earlier, well, five months earlier than planned, but stay for a whole year and have to give us the answer today and you're going out next Monday. And I said, okay, give me a chance to talk to my wife. So I talked to my wife and uh, when I got off the phone, she said, listen, it's what you want to do with support you, but I need you home now to, to sort things out where you go. So I called back the Navy base and said, I want off the ship today. We're alongside Galway. And they said, no, ship's coming back to uh, base on Friday. Stay on the ship on Friday and you fly out Monday. And I threw the, uh, I threw the, uh, uh, a wobbly and it took me off. And I was in the officer's mess the next day and a very famous uh, lieutenant commander uh, who was a, a bit of a scoundrel at coffee says, uh, uh, hey, and he was a he was a total scoundrel. He's passed away now. God bless him. And he said, uh, uh, "Ah, Lieutenant Reynolds, I heard you were a bit of being a bit of a dick yesterday." And I turned and I said, "Look to him in front of all the officers, the the client officers." Well, sir, better being a dick one day in my life than all my life. And I went, "Oh, I'm now in serious trouble." I went and I apologized, and he thought it was the funniest thing. A fair play to him. He had the sense of humor to go, okay, no, that was good. That was very good. Uh, but maybe not in front of the commanding officer next time. So I went to the commanding officer and I said, listen, you know, motions, etc. was fine. And I went right. I went for a, a, pretty much a whole year, uh, which again caused, uh, added to the kind of, oh, he's there for a year, not just six months. He's got two medals, not one medal. And, you know, that's the stuff. Okay, so there seems to be an awful lot of backbiting in the Defence Forces. Yeah, well, it's, it's a closed institution and, and you're competing against your friends for promotion. And you're competing against the people who you share accommodation with. In the Navy, it's even more so you share, you share lives together at, at, at sea. But they're your competition as well if you want to advance within the service. So it's, it's natural. Uh, I did enjoy my time in the Navy. I, 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 I loved my time in the Navy, and I, I regret not a minute of it. But I think uh, leaving was the best thing I did. Uh, I don't think staying my whole career would have been, would have been uh, psychologically the best thing for me. It, there was... I could I could spread my wings a lot more by leaving the Navy and going to the Coast Guard. Okay, so at the start of the interview, you mentioned how you you have a on a couple of occasions have jumped into the darkness, really. Yes. And you, so you left the Naval Service as a lieutenant. Yes, just before I was duty promoted, I didn't wait for my promotion. Yeah. So now, obviously, people would know that in the army, the lieutenant is the the lowest ranking officer, well, first and second lieutenant. Where is it in, in, in the scheme of things in the naval service? It's higher up, obviously, isn't it? Captain. It's, it's the same as the captain. So okay. we've an ensign and second lieutenant, sub-lieutenant is lieutenant in the army, and lieutenant is captain. So it's, it's, a, it's a captain. Uh, but in those days, it was a, a promotion was dead men's shoes. People had to leave before you get promoted. There was nothing else but... And people in those days weren't leaving because there's no jobs outside. So it was, uh, I'd done 18 years. Uh, service uh, and had good reports, and yet was still a captain. Where in in today's defence forces, no, you'd be at least a major, a competent, elected okay. And you, were you you went to the Coast Guard, the Irish Coast Guard, as yes. director, was it? No, 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 no. 
I joined as, as an operations training officer, uh, which was, and I was put into the volunteer services. So next decade, next 10 years, my main job was uh, bringing up the volunteer teams we had around the country from being what was very much a dad's army type of uh, organization into a modern uh, volunteer rescue and response service. And that in, entailed basically rewriting the entire book on how this was done. And I, I obviously I looked around to look for good examples in the UK, I had good examples of how to do this. And that took uh, my first 10 years in in the uh, in the Coast Guard. I then, um, I felt the itchy feet at that point. Uh, and after, and there were some things happening within the Coast Guard about uh, some accidents that happened up the southwest coast with the T-Bonom, uh, not T-Bonom, the uh, uh, pair and stuff that had oh, it. There was a lot of friction going on about that time. So I moved on. I would join the um, HSC as the as the chief emergency, medic, chief emergency management officer for for Mid Leinster and North and South North Dublin, and uh, uh, sorry South Dublin. And uh, within a week, uh, I had done my interviews for director and came back. But I jumped four grades. Wow. So I, le- I left as NOTO, an operation training officer, and came back four ranks, four grades, that I was a week previously. And the only reason I could do that was I went out, basically became non-Coast Guard and came back in as an external candidate. So again, if I didn't take that jump, they could never have promoted somebody four grades and jumped a whole lot of people in the middle, which you can imagine how that was. A lot of people, no, I think it's fair to say that the, the Coast Guard are now regarded as the fourth blue light service. So the guards, the fire service, paramedics and yourselves are the, the Coast Guard. Right. Most people would look, consider the Coast Guard when they see the red and white helicopter overhead. What does yeah. the Coast Guard do? Okay, so a very good question because people don't understand what the word Coast Guard means. And this is where you have to go back to basics. So guarding your coast. That's what Coast Guard is. You're guarding your coast. Now you're guarding your coast from multiple things, including the protection and preservation of the life, the notification of dangers to people who use the waters, the management of shipping, the response to oil pollutions and all that sort of stuff, and also criminality at sea. That's how you exercise sovereignty. So that's now called the Coast Guard function or Coast Guard activity. And each country does it differently. So just because you've got an entity called Coast Guard doesn't mean it does everything. It probably does it quite a bit. So in Ireland, the Coast Guard, there is about 10 to 11 Coast Guard functions that every state in the world needs to exercise. And the Coast Guard does about six. And you have other entities that do other functions, like the Sea Fish Protection Authority, like the Garda Shikona, like the Revenue uh, Service. And you have others who support those, like the Navy, like the Air Force, Air Corps, like the ORNLI, like the uh, Community Lifeboat Service, like Civil Defense, all that. So that's, that is the matrix that you put together. And that is the nation's Coast Guard. Just because it's called a Coast Guard doesn't mean it does everything. There are one or two countries that that is true, like Iceland. Uh, but that's that's not, and America would be the same, that's, but that's not the most common form of Coast Guard. Our Coast Guard comes from what we had under the British rule. And so we've just simply kept that format on. I w- always wanted to see a different form of Coast Guard evolving in Ireland. Just personally, I think that's where we needed to go into the, more the Iceland- Icelandic, the Danish and the French models, because there's some really interesting models of how to exercise full integrated sovereignty over your waters 
uh, that don't necessarily match what we have at the moment. What would that mean? What would the difference be? Well, it depends where you want to go with it. I mean, you have these 10 functions. And so when you're talking about bang for buck and efficiencies and effectiveness, there is a paradigm between all these agencies who are involved in law enforcement on the water, rescue in the water, pollution response in the water, customs and revenue activity. There is a paradigm across all those actors. So you start with, you, we will coordinate together. Come bit right that we will cooperate together. And then next level is we will be interdependent on each other. I will do something so you don't have to do it. You will do something so I don't have to do it. And the most best bang for buck you're ever going to get is integration. We integrate the agencies into a integrated system. So, I mean, it's you're anywhere along that paradigm you want to be. At the moment, we very much sit at the left-hand side, they coordinate and cooperate. Uh, it is very difficult to convince um, organizations uh, and the political uh, uh, political class that integration and interdependency is where you get the ultimate bang for your buck. And you see this in lots of various areas. It's it's topical now because of Sudan and, and and what happened in Kabul uh, and also Ukraine being a classic example of, of EU's actions, the EU's toolbox. It brings a coordinated, cooperated toolbox. It doesn't necessarily bring an integrated toolbox. And if you think just what is coming into my head, but when you consider Coast Guard internationally, it's the American model. Now, those guys are tooled up. They've got helicopters. They've got yeah, yeah, cutters yeah. with heavy weapon well significant weaponry i'll put it that yeah. way and they do interdiction say drugs and that stuff that would be unfeasible for Ireland, wouldn't it really why not i mean see what the the issue is about owning owning the task and this is where in ireland the military don't own the task they own defense of the state they don't own the other tasks and so it is who owns the task and in America, the Coast Guard owns a tank, but it is an armed Coast Guard. If you go to France, they have a system called the Secretary of the Sea and the Prefect Maritime, and it is principally the Navy that owns the task because under French law, the Navy is allowed to own those tasks. You go to Denmark, what they do is they've got a Coast Guard and Navy. It's the same organization, and the officers pass between the Coast Guard and Navy, Navy and Coast Guard, throughout their career, when they're wearing their Navy hats, they have warrants that they can detain, they can arrest, they own their function. And then when they move to the military, they're in defense of the state, extension of power overseas, safety of lines of shipping, that sort of stuff. So there's, you can see how there are models. If you want to go to the most extreme model, you go to Iceland. There is no army. There is no air force. There is no Navy. There's only the Coast Guard. Because Iceland went, well, who's our enemy? No one. What do we need to do? Guard our waters, protect our people, protect our fishing boats, protect, you know, and and then bring that inland as a as a service to our citizens inland as well as at sea. Right. So you said at the start when you were talking about the Coast Guard that it's about guarding the coast. Yes. Does Ireland adequately guard its coast? And Ireland. Garden's coast with a population of four million uh, and, and a budget that it has. You, we have, we have so much water. Now, what a lot of people don't realize, I think, is that we don't own. You're talking about the 200 mile EEZ. We don't own that. 
That's we don't. So we have our our laws extend to twelve nautical miles, about twenty five uh, kilometers off the coast. Anything in there, okay, that's ours. The fishes are fish are ours. What's on the seabed is ours. The laws of the land extend out there. So that is Ireland. So Ireland extends about twenty four kilometers off off the coast of the baselines. After that, the only rights we have under international law are protection and exploitation of the environment and counter-pollution and uh, protection of natural resources. So the EEZ is all about the environment and the resources within the environment and protecting that from, say, pollution, that sort of stuff. We don't have the rights to tell foreign, foreign warships what to do and what not to do in that EEZ. We don't have rights. That's, that is innocent passage. They are quite entitled to have freedom of navigation and high seas. Once they go inside 12 nautical miles, different. So people get confused and think we have this massive ocean. Uh, we don't really, for when it comes to things like the Russians surveying mm-hmm. the pipelines, we don't have the legal authority to tell them to move on. Uh, there are certain, there are very, very restrictive um, uh, clauses under the United Nations Convention on Law of the Sea that allows a coastal state to uh, interfere with the freedom of navigation of any vessel on the high seas. But, can, but do you think even the 12 nautical miles limit is are, are our defences against whatever actor, be they drug smugglers, be they if the Russians decided that they wanted to go off in our waters, can we adequately protect or defend our territorial integrity as it stands? Okay, I, I'm speaking purely personally now. So this, this, is a, this is a personal view. So the personal view is, is that we've never really looked at what we really want from our defense forces. We kind of knew when I was growing up. We defended against the threat from, from the North and the activity of the IRA, and we serviced our UN commitments. We knew. That was it. That's kind of gone now. You know, The internal security issue is no longer an issue. Not really. Our role of the UN, the, the, the role of the UN military is, to be honest, it's waning. And globally, it's waning. There's different. We don't have a regional influence regional PACs, regional forces that now intervene much more than the UN. UN don't do peace enforcement. They don't go and force a peace. They'll go and look and monitor peace. They don't enforce it. So first thing that what I think Ireland as as a mature uh, nation is so what do we want? What actually do you want from our uniformed forces? Are we looking at something uh, that is looking after our national needs and then when our national needs allow us to extend power overseas or extend power outside our national needs, then we can use it. So, for example, the conversation about heavy lift or strategic lift aircraft through Sudan came in. My thing on it, on it is that does Ireland need that strat lift 24-7, 365? No, we probably don't. We don't have the capacity. We don't have the use for to maintain that competence and that skill set, we don't have that. When I was in Somalia, we needed strat lift. We had, we had um, a lot of insecurity in, in, in Somalia, and I had to be able to evacuate my, what was maybe 200 staff out of Mogadishu and, and the various field offices at a drop of a hat. But I didn't have aircraft. 
and nor does the EU centrally have aircraft. There's an EU Air Transport Command for sure. You have to sign up to that. Now it hasn't, but there's no central. So what I did, uh, and what most uh, EU actors would do, would be I'd enter bilateral understanding. So that's what I did. I we talked to Spain, uh, we talked to uh, France, we talked to Italy, all who had actors and capacity in the area, not just out of Djibouti, but you know also in Nairobi and other places, and said, okay, if we need your help. Here are, the, uh, here are the rules of us asking for help. Here's what we do. Here's what you do. Here's, here's where liability and responsibility lies. And here's who's going to pay for it. And then, <clears throat> so we have that ability to call on that. And we did call on it as needed. And during the COVID, say for COVID crisis and during the breakdown in security and mugged issue, you know, we did call on it. But at the end of the day, I already had contracted aircraft. So I entered into... Uh, uh, contracts with commercial companies that will go into hotspots and extract. So I had done it commercially as well. So I had this, you know, if one doesn't work, I got the other way. And that's what Ireland kind of needs because we we're not part of NATO. We're not part of any major arms forces where we have to provide heavy lift aircraft as our job. Somebody else does the tanks, somebody else does the warships, we do the strat lift. That's how the system is. We're not part of that, so we're, we don't have that, that need. So first thing we need, what does Ireland need? And we need to be able to monitor our, our, our waters, for sure. Can we do it at the moment? Do we have radar? Eh, no. Uh, do we have enough ships to do that? Uh, no, but you'll never have enough ships to do it. There's too much water. You just cannot, ships cannot do it by themselves. So you need the other systems, the maritime surveillance systems, the satellite providers the optical infrared, all the other things that you use to recognize non-typical behavior in your waters. And that's what it's about because you're never going to have the ships patrolling everywhere. You have automated systems that identify non-typical behavior, either two ships coming together, ships on a course that they shouldn't be on because they're heading to a different port, all that sort of stuff. And there's systems that are out there to do that. And also, when it comes to our Army and Air Force, Air Corps, what do we need Ireland? What does Ireland need them to do in Ireland for us? And then does that capacity then allow us to extend that to Chad or to Sudan or to... Because it, it, it initially, we need to look out our own backyard. And when that's done, then you have, the, you have a fundamental capacity. And once you have that fundamental capacity, it can be deployed, which I think is a conversation at the moment about Irini and deploying a naval vessel to the Med for Irini. Do we have do we have the bulk to do that? And it's always we're talking about bulk. To extend power overseas, to extend force overseas, you need bulk at home. And if you don't have bulk at home, well then you're robbing Peter to pay Paul, and Peter is your home turf. So get it ready for Ireland first, and if it if it if it works in Ireland, hopefully it'll translate abroad when needed. Yes, because you have the capacity, and and the, the capacity is being maintained because there's an Irish need for it. So you have a home capacity to have various things like uh, the CAS aircraft being a classic example, enough naval vessels, patrol vessels, and, and, and that sort of thing. So and say uh, the airlift for the Army Ranger Wing and Army Ranger Wing vehicles because that may be needed not far away, actually. It might be needed a lot closer to home. So Ireland needs these things, and once you have them, well then, okay, you need an ad hoc need. For so, for example, with Sudan, 
the Irish in Sudan are not working for the Irish government. They're principally working for the UN. So where does the UN's duty of care come near for the people they have in Sudan? A good friend of mine, uh, Aidan, is the uh, EU ambassador to Sudan. Oh, Aidan O'Hara? Yeah, he's a good friend. Because oh, he's, amb- he's ambassador to Djibouti. I've, I've had dinner with himself and his wife in Djibouti many, many times and, and also in Brussels. So he's a good guy, a very good diplomat as well. Uh, he's, an, he's an excellent French speaker, of course, as well. But it's not up for Ireland to have to people extract him. It's up for Europe because he's a, he works for Europe. And that's what they did. I didn't believe the French extracted him. Okay, and I just want to ask, I just want to ask one specific question before we go and talk about your time in Somalia. Yeah. Is Ireland regarded as a, I don't know, a, a weak point for drugs across international drug smuggling? In other words, with our what many people would say porous defences or systems, is it easy for people? Do you think for cartels to bring drugs, land drugs in Ireland or on the coast and transport them onto Europe? Is that an issue? Yeah, it's quite complicated. I, 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 I'll, I'll parse the answer slightly. Um, if you're talking about bulk drugs shipments, well, then yes. I mean, uh, it's it, we've so many ports, so many inlets, so many little places you can land. If you're looking at uh, large bulk uh, transshipments, we are. It's it's nearly impossible to look after every cove and every crook and every cran, cranny. Um, so uh, yes, for bulk. When it comes to the small packaged, they don't tend to go through the maritime space. They tend to go through the airspace. And from a risk reward point of view, drug smugglers, I think, tend to use a smaller, larger uh, uh, amount, larger frequency than, than, than the big shipments they used to do because they lost so much money in, in, in the past. So that's that's the, the first issue. The second issue is you don't interdict at sea. The last thing you're going to do is interdict a drug shipment at sea. You want them to come ashore and you want to track them and you want to get all the links of the chain to those kingpins. But if you interdict at sea, you get the mules. It's a good story in the headlines, but you get the mules. Those bulk shipments you're talking about, I know you say that they've, they've diminished, but do you think, and you know more about this than I do, do you think that actually does happen in Ireland. There are major shipments coming through into an Irish cove or an inlet or whatever undetected. Is that something you think happens? Uh, well, it's happened quite a few times in the past, but not recently. It hasn't been detected recently. Uh, and I think that's just the nature of the um, of the trade. The trade now it looks like it's going in, in, in large bulk to Africa and then being broken out in Africa and coming up through the systems in, in much smaller quantities. So I think the, the the risk of getting caught with so much, uh, and the cost of getting caught with with hundreds of millions worth of drugs, it's easier to to go the go the African route. That seems to be where it's going. Okay, right. Let's talk about Africa. Yeah. Okay. So you went to Somalia as you kept. Just remind us, it's it's obviously the European Union. It's a, a, a mission set up to improve policing and maritime security in Somalia. Yes. Okay. The, the little background, I suppose, to it is the EU. You might mention these CSDP missions. Mm. Europe has put up three missions in that area. So the initial uh, civilian mission was called Nestor Base Security, and that was in the Western in the Ocean mission. And by 2016, it it, it has succeeded in a lot of its work, and it had distilled down to Somalia only. Inside Somalia, there's a training mission, a military training mission. 
Initially, the, the Irish army were the force commanders for that. When it was based in Uganda, when that moved into Mogadishu, uh, the Irish withdrew and it became a, a Italian-led mission. It still is an Italian-led mission. And then off the coast, you have the naval fleet called Atlanta. And that's an executive mission. When we say executive, it replaces a state function, like Arini does. So when a state can't do the function, it will ask a foreign fleet to come in and do that function. And in that case, it was Atlanta, which is still there. And so that was that was my mission. My mission was initially pure maritime. And then uh, with the visit of Frederick, Frederick and Mogherini to Mogadishu in, in late, uh, early 17, May 17, uh, I met her with uh, the then ambassador and with the prime minister. And they looked for the uh, for the mission to evolve into dual habit, both a policing and a maritime. And that's what happened. Uh, the member states at, at Brussels level agreed. And we evolved the mission into being uh, dual habit, one leg at, uh, in the sea and one leg on land. And so the, 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 the sea was about building up the maritime capa- capacity of the Somalis, was it? it was, yeah, it was a, that, that was the core goal. We succeeded in some areas and we failed in other areas. So we succeeded in the policy legislation part of it and developing the various policies, signing up the international conventions. Uh, on the operational side, on the north coast of Somalia, on the, on the southern side of the Gulf of Aden, where that turns and heads out into the ocean, the most risky area of the passage, we've managed to stand up security coast guards. So we've a coast guard based in, in Somaliland, and we're currently well on the way to having a properly based coast guard in Puntland, which is the other kind of federal state on that. So that has been very successful. We've stood up uh, forces on the Yemen side. The Yemeni Coast Guard is beginning to get going, and Djibouti have a very good Coast Guard as well. So that bit of the water, which was the real high risk, that has been done. What we did as well is we changed the narrative. Uh, and my motto was, let's stop chasing pirates. Let's start chasing politicians. Because the reality is, if, so Somalia is so long that if you put the bottom of Somalia in Sicily, it would turn at Babel Mendeb, somewhere north of Helsinki, Jeez. and would finish out in the North Sea. That's oh. how much water, that's how long their coast guy is. It is astronomically long, and there's no way a naval fleet can blockade that. And so the way you stop Somalis being pirates is convincing the elders, who would be convinced by the politicians, that this is no longer acceptable form of crime. There's other forms of crime you can do, but this piracy stuff has to stop. And that was that's worked. That has worked. There hasn't been a a, a proper pirate piratical attack since uh, since 2017, and that was on the north coast, uh, a small tanker, and it was the local forces, the people we work with, who went and took the pirates off the vessel and freed the vessel. But piracy was very bad. Yeah, yeah. it was a real issue, wasn't it? Of course, yeah, it was. It, it had a huge effect on international shipping. It cost hundreds and hundreds of millions uh, for the, the shipping industry, which eventually passed on that cost to us. Okay, so tell us about the, the land side of your mission. Okay, so this is the policing side of the house, mm-hmm. I think. Okay, so the policing side of the house. Uh, so we're based in Mogadishu, and we had two bases up the north. The base up the north are much more stable, so our policing work up there is much normal 
more normal policing. It's not constabulary policing, but it's more CID and, and evidence collection and uh, connecting with Interpol and that sort of stuff. So more, uh, more, more normal. In in the south of the country, where Al Shabaab, which is Al Qaeda affiliated uh, terrorist organization, are very active. We wanted. <coughs> we talked to the Somalis, and we said, "What sort of policing do you want us to help you build?" They want. Well, we don't really understand what community policing is, and we do understand how we fire weapons, and so we want you to help us train a police force that can fight and hold ground. So we want the army to do the kinetic activity with their commando forces to go in, uh, their, their DENAB forces and their, their, their other forces that are trained by foreign, foreign uh, um, armies. They'll do that. They'll do the active fighting. Behind them will come the basic army, and it's a basic army. But they also need to move on. And, but with them come these robust policing, you know, gendarme type policing, they're called Darush. And so we helped up set up uh, syllabi, headquarters, uh, train, and deploy into the area of operations these Darwish forces. And was it successful? Insofar as it can be, I mean, <clears throat> you, you are talking about generational change. Uh, so yes, it has been very, some of it more so. Uh, our work around the Interpol and, and evidence collection has been very, very successful. When it comes to the Darwish, I think what what that led to has been successful. So the concept around the fighting police was always that Somalia didn't have a problem because they could never defeat Al-Shabaab because they could never force generate enough soldiers to fight, kill and hold. That was never going to happen. So you, you had foreign uh, forces like the British, the Americans, the Turks coming in, training you know these commando forces they can do the killing. But the SNA, you're not a Somali National Army. You're never going to have enough. Never going to have enough. So what you need is fighting police. You want people who live locally to be trained as really basic, basic police officers, but who will fight to hold their villages and will fight to protect their clans, but will be loyal to the centre and not loyal to Al-Shabaab. So the concepts around <clears throat> this gendarme these special police that's what's happening now and so we are looking if you look at somalia now there is very active kinetic activity taking place in the bush there are literally hundreds of algebra being killed on a weekly basis and this is by these forces these irregular forces the risk of course being at the end of it is you have to regularize the irregular forces but that is where the mission is going and the un and others okay so we've all seen black hawk down Yep. And we all know that Mogadishu, from the outside, appears a very dangerous place. Was yep. it a dangerous place? It's probably the most dangerous city in, in, in the world. Uh, obviously, there's a Aleppo and like that, where it became, a, for periods, became more dangerous. But it has been a very, very uh, difficult working environment. And uh, we did, we, the mission did travel out in the city every day, uh, sometimes two, three times a day. We had multiple ministries and multiple police stations, etc., to go to. But we always went in armor. You didn't travel except in armor, and uh, you used very, very sophisticated intelligence tools to know when and where to go and when not to go. Uh, as a mission, you'd be very much a special target. It'd be very, it'd be really a, a, a good cherry did if they can get you. They did get a UN special representative. They blew up, killed them not too long, not that long ago. 
Um, so they really are, they, they like to get high-profile figures. So for me, I had my own team of bodyguards. So I had six bodyguards. Uh, they were really for the, for the three, three and a half years I was head of mission. Uh, six bodyguards. It was two worked uh, shift 12 to 12. You know, 12 in the afternoon, it's 12 next afternoon. Then the other two took over and two on leave. So wherever I was, going out for a walk, going for lunch, I had two bodyguards with me all the time. Uh, I had my own armored vehicles. Uh, uh, and uh, so I was, you know, we took security very, very carefully. Very, and very carefully. Would you have to have had to have worn body armor yourself? Were you kitted up like that? Yeah, of course, yes. Right, okay. And would, did you ever arm yourself? No, no. The rule is that if you carry a weapon at home, you can carry a weapon when you're there. Uh, but I didn't carry a weapon in the Coast Guard. The Coast Guard's armed. And did that not make you feel vulnerable? Would you have felt more secure? With, I know they have your bodyguards, but would you have felt more secure with your own firearm? No. If you met my bodyguards, you'd be quite comfortable. They're all ex, uh, pretty much all ex-Foreign Legion. Uh, and these were, these were, these were tough guys. These are monsters of guys. These are huge men. And they had a huge experience behind them. Um, so now I was very comfortable that, and they, uh, the one or two times things happened and they had to react quickly and I could see how they, they reacted. It was very professional. Okay. I, I, so before, before I went out, actually, um, one of the things that uh, I was on foreign affairs is, is a clinic can do. And they said, that we didn't really have anything, but I contacted a ranger wing. And they said, listen, Chris, we're going to Chad with uh, Leo Varka and we need to practice our close protection routine. Do you want to be prime minister for a day or Tisha for a day? I said, let's, let's do this. So they collected me here in my house in Clain and full convoy, full armor protection. And we did uh, a trip to Kilkenny. Uh, we did a tour of the uh, castle as a VIP, as a, a target, walk around the city, uh, went for lunch and then back to Ranger HQ for some debriefings. Uh, for days, so that was uh, so. I could see how it should be done, and the rangers are superb professionals. They really are superb professionals, and I could see my guys. They were they were, they were pretty good as well. Okay, so you mentioned the one or two incidents. Yeah, what were what were they? You would have ordnance going off, uh, so you'd be you'd be moving around and be bombed close by. You might meet a target, but you might just accidentally be be the target. Oh. Or we had mortars, so. Uh, quite often we'd have mortars in around the compound. So a mortar would hit, or you know, we never won, usually six or eight mortars would come in. And uh, my guys would basically um, be on top of me uh, and have me in shelter in seconds and would not leave me uh, and would uh, protect me uh, with their lives, I think. Um, so, no, I felt very comfortable. I was, was, we did, they were very good people. And you mentioned ordnance landing close by. Was that artillery shells or would it have been IEDs or water? IED, IED, well, outside IED. Okay. Inside, so, inside, inside, inside uh, IDF. Okay. So how close did they, the were those IEDs that exploded to you? Uh, IEDs, oh, down like 100 metres, 200 metres, not that close. Oh, that's, oh, well, hold on a second here. That's pretty close. Yeah, well, that's but I was you were to target. There was somebody else. It was a checkpoint was target, and you just happened to be going through a, a close by checkpoint or going down the road. And so that was the risk you had because we didn't mark our vessel or flag our vessels. Like unlike the military, who were very very visible and got hit twice. The military, the, uh, the Italian convoys, the EU team got hit twice the same day, one year apart. And um, so they were very visible where we were not visible. 
and we, we varied our routes, varied our, our locations. And so it was very hard to profile our movement. So if you were unlucky, you were unlucky. They but, couldn't target you. But when you say about 100, 200 metres, I presume the shockwave got to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I've what, been what's that like? Yeah, tell us uh, what's, that, what's that like. Just be... I uh, have a beer. <laughs> it, uh, I be, you know, it, I've, I've gone through it before, um, and I'm an adrenaline junkie anyway. Uh, and you don't do my sort of life without being an adrenaline junkie. And so I, I you know, I didn't, just, it just didn't. If it, it, it actually livened the conversation for the next while. Were you ever aware of an imminent threat to your life, an active plot to murder, shall we say? Not that specific intelligence. There was general intelligence about um, the type of target they're looking for, where and how uh, it was going to take place. And when we got that intelligence, we just responded to that intelligence and we took mitigation measures corresponding to that intelligence. The most obvious mitigation measure is to not do the movement that day. We did. I remember once... We're going out. I was going up to uh, Villa Somalia, which is where the president is, and, uh, mostly, and his police commissioner would be. And we're due to go to the port to visit the port authorities in the morning. And that port authority visit was for half nine. But a bomb went off outside the port at half seven. So over 50 people were killed in that particular bombing. And I made a decision, no, we're going to go. But we, we just defer movement. And so we moved up to Villa Somalia, taking a different route in at 12 o'clock. And as we were leaving, going out the uh, particular gate, the, the people were coming in with the bodies um, to the beach where they buried their bodies on the beach uh, within three, four hours of the attack taking place. And the people are burying their loved ones uh, on the beach. Went to their Villa Somalia. And on, when I asked, I said to the close question guy says let's go down by the port I want to see if it's if the roads are open and went down by the port and the roads were open and we drove past the bomb site and part of the, what was left of the banged car had been cleaned up and people were going about their daily lives and we passed by and passed again there were still uh, burials going on as we passed by the beach area but that's the life it is just um, that is the life I mean uh, there was one there was one suicide bombing in October in November 2017, that over 600 people were killed in a bomb in a hotel. It hardly made the news at home. Over 650 people killed in one bomb and hardly made the news at home. Did you ever feel frightened? No. 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 So you thought you'd mitigate, you and your team had mitigated the risks? Yes, to, to as low as reason possible. Okay. So by the sounds of things, would you have heard explosions and shooting would it have been on a daily basis we well, yes, on a daily basis yes did you get used to it yes of course yes okay and is there I, i'm told that there's a like in in baghdad there's a, a green zone would that be the case where yeah most we were in green zone yeah absolutely so around the airport area is called halan district there's a green zone so you have uh, layers of protection into the green zone uh, the outer layer being the Somali layer of protection, the next being the African Union troops layer of protection, and then your own compound would have its own protection uh, system as well. And then inside the compound, your own security people would have their own. So effectively, there's four layers of protection. Uh, so you, you cannot break in. That cannot be. That's 
hermetic seal. They, you can't, they have, so Alchemy did succeed in getting in, but never really did serious damage once they got inside the green zone. Uh, really, they didn't do an awful lot uh, once they got inside because they couldn't get much inside. Maybe a hand grenade, maybe a pistol, something like that. That's all they could get in. So um, that green zone encompasses about 20 compounds as well as the airport and about five or six hotels. Uh, um, so it's a it's a city within a city in some ways, and it's very peaceful in there. Is it possible to, did you have as normal a life as you could yes. when you were there? Yes, you could. I, I live beside the Indian Ocean. My, my room, when I opened my window in the morning, the Indian Ocean was only about 15 metres away. And, and the compound I was in was was quite okay. It's a it's a compound life. I was a sailor. I can get used to compound life. But we have a beach, and the, the, we can walk on the beach every day. And the beach walk is there and back to down to Fulentes at eight and a half kilometers. And you can go do that run or do a walk. We are your bodyguards come with you, I'm afraid. Uh, but you can do that. And, and uh, inside, like there's a you can got a gym, uh, yeah, that sort of thing. So it's you can. It's restricted. Okay. You're back home. You're back home. Yeah. Is it four or five months, is it? No, no. Only, well, um, first of January. Oh, very good. Oh, okay. Yeah. Right. Do you miss it? I do in many ways. Uh, but I did six and a half years out there. So uh, I do in many ways. There, I have offers to go back. Uh, I don't know if I'll say it. Uh, I have an offer uh, to go back uh, for a year. Um, I don't know if I'll do it. Uh, I, <clears throat> I think at this stage, I still like adrenaline. Yeah, so I haven't yet found what we're going to do next. I'm only 61, uh, and retirement is not on the cards for me. So if any of your listeners have anything interested in going, I could be your man. Um, it's really hard to top your career. What are options are you considering, or what would you like to do? One of the things I, I'd love to do is, is go back into the national coastguarding concept. And what I talked about earlier about uh, at a policy level to look across government at our whole maritime security architecture, not just in stovepipes, to look across all the various activities and what does Ireland need and how does that fit in with our international obligations. And to do a piece of work around this coast guarding function and how we could actually be a model for the rest of Europe because we have the waters, we have the people. Our Navy it's a Coast Guard. Our Navy is an armed Coast Guard. Our Navy is the closest thing we have to the US Coast Guard, but it doesn't own its own jobs. So if you think about how do you make the Navy, the Air Corps, uh, Coast Guard, how do we own and share the jobs? So we own the responsibility. And once you own the responsibility, then everything else flows from that. Okay. Is it fair to say you won't need six Foreign Legion bodyguards for that, though? No, no, but I might need one or two. Uh, but I'm a rugby referee. That's, oh. I do. That's my real uh, or my real joy at home. And sometimes I need a bodyguard for that. OK, Chris Reynolds, this has been a fantastic interview and we're very, very grateful. It was really enlightening and, and it went down a lot of roads. I just did not see this happening from Prince Andrew to Air India to Somalia. It was Somalia. It was really, really interesting. Thanks for joining us today. Pleasure. <laughs>